Uh, tonight, let's open our Bibles to Judges, Judges chapter 6. Tonight, we will be looking at uh, the fourth period within the book of Judges. If you recall, when we first started this book, I had mentioned that there were seven different periods of time where the children of Israel had uh, judges or rulers that would rule over them, deliverers. And we're looking tonight at the fourth period, and that really spans uh, a couple of chapters, basically chapters 6 through 8, verse 32 specifically, and it's about the life of Gideon. And so this is the fourth period in the book of Judges. And we'll be looking tonight at a couple of different themes. Really within chapter 6 we can see there's certainly more than one theme. There might even be more than two, I'm sure. But the ones that really the Lord brought out to me during this time was uh, one of the themes is how, how God can use the most unlikely person. How He can use someone who is fearful. Someone who doesn't really understand who God is completely. Somebody who is still on their way and maturing in their faith. And that's certainly something that we will look at and we will, we will define a little further. And the second theme is certainly the grace and the compassion of God in encouraging our faith. And we will see uh, Gideon at a couple of different times just kind of wavering and not really understanding who God really is. His theology wasn't all together, but God saw a man who he could use at a time when Israel was at its one of its worst times. In fact, this whole time of the book of Judges, which really spans a period of uh, some range between 400 to perhaps even 450 years, is really a time of failure for the children of Israel. And if you remember last week when we got together, we looked at chapters 4 and 5, and it was about a heroine named Deborah. And we saw how she delivered, how she really had faith in God, and God used her mightily. And and there was nothing wrong with Deborah's heart. She was a prophetess. She was a, a judge. And people respected her. And God had a hold of her heart. And God was able to use her. And, and the question we have to ask ourselves is, where were the men? Why wasn't there a man? Now, again, if you recall last week, we talked about the difference between men and women and just our roles. And, and, and those roles are holy. Those roles are God-given, and when we abide by those roles and when we live inside those roles, there's great blessing on our lives, not only for our own families, but in our church uh, body, and certainly in the world when we accept those, um, when, we, when we accept those roles. And at this time in Israel history, the men weren't standing up, the men weren't leading the charge. In fact, they were more in retreat in their desperation of their rebellion. And, and at this time, uh, you remember in chapters 4 and 5, Deborah was really the one who, who really the Lord had a hold of. And God will use a woman, there's no doubt, because there's no difference between a man and a woman. Uh, there's no difference. There's not one that's more intelligent than another. There's not one that's more gifted than another. There is really no difference. The difference is, ju is just in God's design when He designed man and woman. Um, and so that's really all there is to it. But God, um, I'm, I'm certain if there was a man in Israel who had the faith of Deborah, he would have loved to have chosen him. And he would have still had Deborah continue to pray and maybe even continue to pray and encourage whoever that was. And we find that uh, Barak was uh, an unlikely leader and really uh, was very afraid. And, and God had to use Deborah really to encourage him. And we know that uh, ultimately... 
uh, the two women that really shined out of chapter 4 and 5 were certainly Deborah and uh, J.L., um, who was uh, a woman who was the one who actually uh, killed Sisera. You remember in the tent that, that horrific uh, display that we have uh, for us. You know, it's a, it's a really discouraging, very graphic picture of what she did by nailing him to the ground with a tent peg. And so she and Deborah were the heroines of this. And certainly in a smaller scale, certainly uh, Barak and the armies of Israel uh, they had some part in it too. So now we get into Judges chapter 6, this fourth period, and it speaks of the life of Gideon. So let's get right into it. It says, Then the children of Israel, and again, after uh, Deborah and uh, Barak and the armies, after they had rid that area of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor, which is a town just north of the uh, Sea of Galilee. And the, the ruins of that are still there today. We saw them when we were in Israel just a few weeks ago. And so she rid them of, uh, and Barak and the armies, uh, rid them of Jabin and his armies and Sisera and the armies. And it says at the very last verse of chapter 5 that the land had rest for 40 years. So think of that. They've had this, this great victory, and now there's just this time of rest. Forty years, think of it. That's a pretty long time. And during that time, the, the hearts of the people were starting to grow dim and starting to grow cold toward the things of the Lord. And all the while, the, the inhabitants of the land that they were supposed to have driven out, remember, and because they didn't, those, those peoples in the, in the land were infiltrating and being more of a of a witness upon the people of God rather than the people of God being a witness to them. And we know what happens, and it's a familiar thing. So the land had rest for 40 years, but then we see the fateful consequence of their uh, rebellion and their lukewarmness. It says, Then the children of Israel, they did evil in the sight of the Lord. And so the Lord delivered them into the hand of Midian for seven years. And the hand of Midian prevailed against Israel because of the Midianites, I'm sorry, the hand of Midian prevailed against Israel. And because of the Midianites, the children of Israel made for themselves the dens, the caves, and the strongholds which are in the mountains. And I can attest to this, having just been there, as we drove along the Jordan Valley, and as we were in the Jordan Valley and looking up to the right, and to the, especially on the right side, as we were going down Highway 90, going down toward uh, Jerusalem in that area, it's very, it, there's mountains on either side in the Jordan Valley. And as we look up on our right side, we can see hills and, and mountains, and there are holes in those mountains. And I remember a couple years ago, uh, when I was in Israel again, we actually went inside some of those caves that are there inside of the mountains. And these are the things, these are the places that the children of Israel have hidden for years, not only at this time, but even in subsequent uh, times in history where they were running from their enemies. And so notice it says that the Midianites, uh, well, who are the Midianites? We know that it was Abraham, after Sarai had died, uh, that Abraham married again, and he married a woman by the name of Keturah. And it says that the sixth, um, excuse me, uh, the fourth son, that uh, they had six sons by the, of, of their union together, and the fourth son, was named Midian. 
And, uh, and Midian ought to ring a bell in your minds because uh, if you think of Abraham's time period and then you fast forward several hundred years, we see, remember, when Moses was in Egypt, he was schooled in Egypt, and remember he, there was a time where he killed the Egyptian, and then he fled into the land of Midian, which is modern-day Saudi Arabia. And so he flees to the Midian, and he meets a woman there by the well uh, of water. And we know that it is uh, Jethro's daughters, uh, one of his daughters. He married there, and uh, he tended his father-in-law's flocks there in the desert for 40 years. And God, of course, was preparing him all that time. And then you fast forward then uh, another couple hundred years, and then we see... In Numbers chapter 22 through 24, we see Balaam's interview with Balak, the king of Moab. And in Numbers 25, it tells us that there was an account where uh, Balaam had um, uh, told the king of Moab, uh, he, he wouldn't pronounce a, a curse upon the children of Israel, but he, he gave him a, a uh, he whispered something into his ear in a sense and, and says, if you really want to bring judgment upon the Israelites, they can bring it upon themselves. All you need to do is have the Midianite and the, Moab, the Moabite girls come in and, um, and meet the young men and nature would take over and there would be a problem. And that's exactly what had happened. And then uh, fast forward then uh, to Numbers 31, not long after that, Moses caused the children of Israel to go up against who? The Midianites. And they slaughtered them in a very big way. And so now, as we get into chapter 6 here, there is definitely a very uh, bad uh, friction between the Midianites and the children of Israel because they've had bloody, bitter battles in the past, not too long ago, you know, maybe uh, 150 or less years. And, and now they are angry at each other and they're wanting to kill each other again. And so... Not only the Midianites, but also the Amalekites. And so look what it says in verse 3. It says, So it was, whenever Israel had sown, that the Midianites would come up, and also the Amalekites and the people from the east would come up against them. Now remember, the children of Israel were an agrarian society, so they really depended upon their crops and God's blessing on the crops for their daily sustenance. But now the Midianites, this people group that we were just talking about, who is a descendant from one of Abraham's uh, wives. And we also find out that the Amalekites are also joining them. And remember that the Amalekites, uh, Amalek was the grandson of Esau. And you remember the bitterness between Esau and Jacob. And those two people groups, even to this day, they hate each other. There's, there's always been an animosity between Abraham and you know, Abraham's descendants through Jacob and the other descendants through um, certainly through Keturah and certainly through Esau. We, and so we see that bitterness just continuing. And also the people of the east. These were uh, bands of marauders that were in the desert uh, on, the, on the east side of the Jordan River. They would certainly come over and join the Midianites and the Amalekites to come against together the children of Israel. So it says in verse 4, Then they would encamp against them, and they would destroy their produce of the earth as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance for Israel, neither sheep nor ox nor donkey. And uh, it's, it's interesting because this is really a result of or, or fulfilled or partially fulfilled prophecy. Because back in Leviticus chapter 26, 
beginning in verse 14, if we recall, God had told them, the children of Israel, the commandments, and and share with them that if if they do these things, if they follow these things, then they will be blessed. There will be blessings physically, tangibly. But he also said in verse 14 of Leviticus chapter 26, he says, notice, but if you do not obey me, now remember, this is several hundred years prior to what we're reading He says, but if you do not obey me, God says, and you do not observe all these commandments, and if you despise my statutes, or if if your soul abhors my judgments so that you do not perform all my commandments, but break my covenant, I will also do this to you. And here is what God says that he was going to do, and we're going to see it right before our eyes in this chapter. He says, I will even appoint terror over you, wasting disease and fever which consume the eyes and cause sorrow of heart and you shall sow your seed in vain for your enemies shall eat of it now certainly this was just one part of the prophecy that's being fulfilled we know that this prophecy is going to fulfill itself there's going to be more uh, iterations uh, of that prophecy being fulfilled uh, later on in israel's future going all the way through their babylonian captivity all the way through to the uh the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, and, and, and still even to this day, you know, they, they're always uh, uh, at odds with their enemies. And so we can see this happening in chapter 6 and 7 as we, as we look at it, just that prophecy coming to fruition. So in verse 5 it says, For they would not come up, or for they would come up, sorry, I'm sorry, the, the Amalekites, the Midianites, and those from the east, they would come up, with their livestock and their tents, coming in as numerous as locusts, both they and their camels were without number, and they would enter the land to destroy it. So they came to destroy, they came to impoverish the children of Israel, again, because they're bitter enemies. And so it says, Israel was greatly impoverished because of the Midianites, and the children of Israel, they cried out to the Lord. Now remember, We talked about this uh, the last couple of weeks, but notice again, like times before, they they cried out, but it wasn't out of repentance. They cried out because of their, they were going through a hard time. And maybe you've been in a situation like that where you've cried out. Maybe something has come upon you. Maybe because of your actions, you have sown something. Something is happening as a result of your actions. Something maybe of your disobedience. Maybe it's a sin issue and you find yourself in the position of, of, of reaping uh, the reward of that or, or reaping the consequence of that. And, and we can relate to it in one of two ways. When we encounter something like that, we can either repent, we can either turn away from those things, or we can uh, cry about it and just wish that we weren't going through the difficult situation. And the Bible has a lot to say about that. In fact, you know, God is so gracious and he's so compassionate, even though he knew that the children of Israel, all they were exhibiting was worldly sorrow. It wasn't a godly sorrow that led to repentance. Remember what we learned from 2 Corinthians chapter 7, beginning in verse 9, where Paul said to the Corinthians, he said, I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, because remember, Paul had already written to them the first letter, 1 Corinthians, and now he comes back to them later and says, I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly manner that you might suffer loss from us and nothing. Notice, for godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to salvation not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. And that's exactly what any kind of 
any kind of response to something ill that's happening to us, if we don't respond in repentance, and even if we don't know what it is, the best thing to do is to drop to our knees and say, Lord, have I done anything? Have I done anything to deserve this? Is this just part and parcel for life in a fallen world? Or is this a direct, are, are you allowing something in my life? Or maybe have you orchestrated something in my life to bring me to an end of myself? And, and that's a good thing to, that's a good place to be in because that opens the book in a sense. And now you can, and the Lord may speak to you right there on the spot. It may be a couple days as you're reading the Word, as you're reading an unrelated passage in Scripture, and then all of a sudden the Lord just illuminates a passage and speaks to your heart. And that's how it works. He can speak to your heart. He can, he can minister through His Word. He can whisper into, into that uh, still, small voice in your heart. He can do all of those things. But they didn't do that. They, 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 they continued in their rebellion. Notice verse 7. So it says, And it came to pass, when the children of Israel cried out to the Lord because of the Midianites, that the Lord sent a prophet. Notice there's no name of who the prophet is. You would think something so great as this, that the man's name would be there, but the Holy Spirit doesn't seem fit to tell us the prophet's name. And, and that's okay. He says that the Lord sent a prophet to the children of Israel who said to them, notice what he says, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel. Again, not his own thoughts, not his own words, but he's there to minister on behalf of God. That's what a prophet does. A prophet is not about what he thinks. He is there as simply as a messenger to say exactly what God has told him to say. So what does he say to them? He says, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of bondage. And of course, he's speaking of Egypt. And I delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of all who oppressed you. And I drove them out before you and gave you their land. And that's exactly what has happened. Because when they came into the land, they drove out the inhabitants, as many of them as they could. They didn't do the job completely. We know that. But God allowed, this is what God told them. I, I've, I've allowed you to do all these things. And also, verse 10, I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But you have not obeyed my voice. You have not obeyed my voice. And boy, that's never a good thing to hear from the Lord when He rebukes us and He says, you've not obeyed me. You've been rebellion. You've been rebellious. You've, been, you've loved your sin more than you've loved me. Does that ring true to anybody? I know at times it does me. The Lord you know, just reveals things to you. And, and we have a decision to make, right? He says, but you have not obeyed my voice. And whenever a prophet came into town, um, a prophet's job was unusual because sometimes he brought comfort and encouragement, but more often than not, he brought warning and sometimes impending judgment. And we certainly see that if we just uh, back up a couple of chapters. You remember in chapter 2 of Judges, and this is a time when the angel, uh, uh, the angel rebuked them because they came into the land after their inheritance, uh, but they did not finish the job of rooting out the inhabitants, those Canaanites in the land. Remember what it said there in Judges 2, verses 1 through 3. And let me just read it to you, because it's very similar to what we're seeing here that the, that the prophet tells them. It says, Then the angel of the Lord came up from Gilgal to Bochim and said, Now, doesn't this sound familiar? I led you from Egypt and brought you to the land. Now, notice it says, The angel of the Lord. I brought you out, uh, up from Egypt and brought you into the land of which I swore to your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you. 
and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall tear down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. Why have you done this? And I don't know about you, but when I, if I heard that from the Lord, uh, well, we'd probably be no different than the children of Israel. A, a, initially, it would break our hearts. There'd be a, a time of mourning. But if it's not godly repent, or if it's not godly sorrow, it's just going to pass after our mourning. After we lick our wounds, then we go back to our same old thing. It's like the the um, the dog returning to its vomit again. And isn't that true? You know, God can re- rebuke us. We can be convicted of something, and if we don't turn from it, if we truly don't repent of it. Our hearts get sorrowful, and we afflict ourselves for a couple of days, and then before you know it, we're back to the same thing again. That's not real repentance. That's just worldly sorrow. And we proved it because we didn't repent. It doesn't mean that we're going to be perfect, but there ought to be repentance in the life of a believer. We should be looking and examining everything. And so, as we get into here, let's go on. It says in verse 11 now, It says, Now the angel of the Lord, notice again, the angel of the Lord, the angel of the Lord, came and sat under the terebinth tree, which is an Oprah, which belonged to Joash the Abbeizrite, while his son Gideon threshed wheat in the winepress in order to hide it from the Midianites. Now the angel of the Lord, again, you recall the last time we, a couple of times before, uh, probably two uh, services ago on a Thursday night, we looked at this angel of the Lord, and we won't spend a great deal on this again, but I just want to make you aware of something. Notice in verse 14 of this same chapter, I want you to underline something, because he's speaking here, excuse me, in verse uh, 11. Now look with me up at verse 14. It says, Then the Lord turned to him. Notice the Lord turned to him. And it's speaking of the same angel, the angel of the Lord. And it says, then the Lord, the word there is Jehovah. So we know that this angel, whoever this angel is, it is Jehovah God. And so there's only one Jehovah God. So this is the angel of the Lord, none other than Jesus Christ, a pre-incarnate visitation of Christ before his incarnation in, in the womb of Mary, as we know, recorded for us in the Gospels. It's also called a theophany. And you remember, we saw the same thing again in Exodus chapter 3. Remember what it says. Uh, the angel of the Lord appeared to Moses in that, fight, in that flame, that, that, that bush out in the desert, in the backside of the desert, and it was on fire, but it wasn't consumed by the flame. And so, and the Lord, and it says, the angel of the Lord appeared to him. And then in verse 4, it says, so when the Lord, when, when Jehovah saw that he turned aside, God called to him from that bush. And what did he say? And what did he say to him? In verse 5 he says, "I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob." And Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look upon God, and the Lord said. And Jehovah said. So the angel of the Lord, this is none other than Jesus Christ himself. Going on in verse 11 again, notice what it says. So the angel of the Lord came and came to this place called Oprah. It literally is Oprah in the Hebrew. Uh, it looks like Ophrah. We might be able to pronounce it that way, but it's Oprah, and it means fawn. And this is a place in Manasseh. Remember, the children of Israel were divided up into their tribes in the Promised Land, in, in the land of Canaan. And so the land of Manasseh, which Gideon was from, uh, this is a specific place. 
And this is where the angel of the Lord sat next to a specific terebinth tree. I love in the Bible how it gives very specific in, in, um, landmarks. Now, today we can't go and find this terebinth tree because it's long gone. And there's probably other terebinth trees growing in the area, but for that specific one, we don't know because it's been over 2,000, actually going back over 3,000 years, right? Um, and so we don't know where this place is, but it belonged to Joash. This is Gideon's father. He is an Abiezrite, and he is from the tribe of Manasseh as well. And... Um, and so this is Gideon's father, and it says, While his son Gideon threshed wheat in the winepress in, in order to hide it from the Midianites, because the Midianites were doing what they were doing, they had to uh, thresh their wheat kind of in private and, and away from the Midianites. And that's hard to do if you want to get a lot of it done. So they had to do it in, in short places, in small, smaller places, and as a result of that, you're not going to yield as much grain either, right? And so the people are going to be impoverished, and it's just going to take a lot more time. And so we see the hardship that this was for the children of Israel. So verse 12, the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, notice what the angel says, the Lord is with you, you mighty man of valor. You mighty man of valor. And I love the way the Lord, that, that he doesn't see as man sees. He can look at each of our lives. He, he can look at you. And do you know that He's looking in your heart? He's looking at you. And He looks at us and, and, and He sees things that our family don't even see. He, sings, he sees things about us that our spouses don't even see or understand. God can see within the heart. He can see within the heart. You remember when Samuel was told by the Lord to go to Jesse's, home and Jesse had uh, eight sons and one of them was David and he was the youngest and he was out in the field and remember that God spoke to Samuel and says go because I want you to anoint one of his sons and so Samuel being an obedient prophet he does that he goes and the first one he sees is Eliab who was uh, Jesse's first uh, firstborn son the oldest and probably the most handsome who knows but the Lord said to him in 1 Samuel 16, verse 7, and this is a verse that if you, I would write this one down, this is a really good verse to really think about, to memorize it even. What did the Lord said to Samuel? He says, do not look at his appearance, because when, when Samuel saw Eliab, Jesse's older, eldest son, he thought, certainly this is the guy. He's beautiful, he's big, he's the firstborn, the right belongs to him. And God told him, he says, do not look at his appearance or his physical stature because I have refused him. I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And I'm so glad about that, that God looks at the heart. He doesn't look at the outward appearance. See, the world, that's all the world can do. All the world can do is size you up in the natural. All they can do is look at your physical structure before them. They can look at how you dress, the way you hold yourself, the way you speak, how well-groomed or lack thereof you are. And the world can see the gifts that you have, maybe the schooling that you went to. You know, maybe you've been to Harvard or Oxford, you know, and you've been to the, some of the Ivy League schools like Yale. You know, maybe, you know, and the world looks at that and they're just like, wow, you've been to the Ivy League school the pearly gates, the, you know, you've been at the ivory tower. What's it like up there? You know, and God says, you know what? I could care less about any of that. 
I could care less about any of that. The world sees something, and all it can do is size up the gifts, the look. What can you do for me? But God looks at the heart, and he sees things that no one else can see. And that's the way he looked at Gideon. The Bible says that faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. And notice what God, the angel, was saying to him. And the Lord is with you, you mighty man of valor. Now that ought to do something because faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. And Gideon is no different than you and I. If God were to speak that same thing to you and I, would we immediately just go, okay, that's it. I'm, I, I've got the, uh, the command of God. He spoke this word and I believe it and I'm going to go out and grab it. You know, uh, Most of us aren't like that. And so before we get too hard on Gideon, we have to take a good look at ourselves and say, would I really do that? Would I appropriate that statement in faith and, and run with it? Or would I um, shrink back um, as, uh, as Gideon did? He shrunk back. But um, Jesus has the ability to see a life unlike any of us. And we should never judge a book by its cover, even though we tend to do this all the time. We look at people, we size them up, and um, how they dress, how they speak. And, you know, there's so many stereotypes in the world, and it's hard for us to, to, to escape those things. But we have to resist it as much as possible because some, some of the poorest people, some of the least educated people on the world have the greatest relationship with God and have the biggest hearts and are the most giving and the most gracious people. And, 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 and yet we can look at them and, and see them of, of no value because what can they do for me? They don't have any money. They don't have any pedigree. They don't have any say in the world. So therefore, I really can't, they can't do anything for me. So what good are they? Right? That, that's, the, that's the mentality of the world. But remember, the Lord can do a great deal with very little. Remember what he did with just a few fishes and a few loaves how he multiplied. God can do a lot with very little, and he can certainly do a lot inside of a person who the world just looks at and says, you know what, this person has nothing to offer. So notice in verse 13, Gideon said to him, now notice, oh my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his miracles which our father told us about, saying, did not the Lord bring us up, out, up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and delivered us into the hands of the Midianites. Notice that Gideon didn't quite understand the Lord's dealings with people. His, his theology wasn't quite correct. And perhaps you feel a lot like Gideon. And you know that's okay because we're all uh, being uh, formed and shaped into the image of Christ. And, and sanctification, as you know, is a process. It takes time. And God is so patient with you and I. He's so patient. You know, never feel in a hurry to do anything. All the time that God is working, He's investing in you, and He's doing things in the basement of your heart that you can't even fathom, you can't even imagine. And I can, I can attest to that because there were times when, uh, you know, when I was here at the church and Pastor Jeff was here, and, and, and I was totally blessed with what I was getting to do and, and the things that I was allowed to do. And, and Pastor Jeff, out of, out of grace, he just basically just, you know, he was able just to study, and I would just take care of, of everything else at a, at a certain time anyway. I was just, uh, that, that's kind of my role at that time. And I had no idea at that time that God was preparing me. And it's a wonderful thing to just unbeknownst to us he's working and so especially in those times when you're going through the trenches especially those times where you feel like nothing is happening 
you know, like when you're going through literally the valley of the shadow of death, it just feels like you're spinning your wheels. You just feel like God is so distant. It's often those times that He's doing the greatest work, and we just have a hard time understanding and acknowledging it during that time because our emotions, we're physical beings, unfortunately. Don't you, don't you sometimes just, you know, we love and we hate our flesh. You know, I love my flesh, otherwise I wouldn't feed it, I wouldn't bathe it, I wouldn't comb the hair, I wouldn't, you know, uh, do all those things. But I hate my flesh at the same time. It's a love-hate relationship. Maybe you have the same uh, feelings about it, about your own flesh. <laughs> but notice that he just, he didn't understand but he also didn't understand that this thing had happened to them nationally because of their sin and rebellion that caused these calamities. You know, that was the answer that uh, Gideon should have known. It's because of their rebellion. That's why all this has happened. I mean, look at his own father. We're going to see here shortly that his father was a Baal worshiper. He had an altar, and the whole town knew about this altar, and they worshiped there too. And so, he, you know, certainly couldn't they understand that they've, they've departed so far from their tradition, from, from what the Bible had told them, from what their, their ancestors, their, their forefathers, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, had they learned nothing from their history? Had they learned nothing? Had they completely forgotten God? They really had. They had left Him by the wayside, and instead they embraced the false idols and the false gods of the nations that they went to possess. But notice in verse 14, Then the Lord, Jehovah, that's literally the name there, this angel of the Lord, then, then Jehovah turned to him and said this, Go in this might of yours, and you shall save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Have I not sent you? Isn't that an awesome thing to consider? Have not I sent you? Go in this your might, and, and you shall save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Haven't I just said it? Haven't I just said it? You know, God's commandments are God's enablements. We have to remember that. If He's called you to do something, He's given you everything you need, the world will look at what you have and say, uh, you just you don't really measure up. There's no way you can do this with just based on who you are. It's just not going to happen. You need this. You need a lot more money. You need, you need to have the right degree. I mean, you, you don't know anything. And then you don't have this and you don't have that. And they start listing all these things that you don't have. And God says, have I not told you? <laughs> and, and, and I would be probably like Gideon and say, Lord, I'm the least in my father's house. I'm, I'm just small. I'm nothing. Why don't you use somebody else? And the Lord says, no, I'm going to use you because you're the least in your father's house. And why is that? Because I will receive the glory and not you with your fancy Yale degree. You know, whatever degree it is, your pedigree, your, your giftings, your, your, your skills and abilities that you've worked hard to, to maintain and to... And to um, and to hone those things. God says, I will share my glory with no one. No one. God will share His glory with no one. So in verse 15, So he said to him, O my Lord, how can I save Israel, Gideon says. Indeed, my clan, it's the weakest in Manasseh. And I am the least in my father's house. And I love Paul, uh, the Apostle Paul's response to that command, or that, that statement of Gideon's. He says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Paul knew the secret. He knew that in his weakness, God could do great things in him, that God's uh, strength would be made perfect in Paul's weakness. And we read that in the Philippians 4.13. And he loves, God loves to take the insignificant and the things or individuals that nobody else wants, and he loves to do great things with them. What does it say in 1 Corinthians? We just read this not too long ago, a few weeks ago. 
It's in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning in verse 26. It says this, For you see, Paul says to the Corinthians, For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty. So 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26. You know that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God has chosen what? Those who are educated in the Ivy League schools, the, the big law schools. God has chosen those who are beautiful in their own sight. God has chosen those people who are just so gifted, so beautiful that they have to look at themselves in the mirror for at least three hours before they're able to go outside so that they can dim the glory so that people aren't knocked over when they, when they see them. God has chosen those things. Is that what he says? No. God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty and the base things of the world, the, the offscouring things of the world, and the things which are despised God has chosen, and the things which are not to bring nothing, to bring to nothing the things that are. And why is this? That no flesh should glory in his presence. He will share his glory with no one. You know, as Gideon is sharing and making the statement that he's just the least in his house, the least of the tribes, uh, I think we, uh, Jeremiah related to this very well when God called him. Remember what he said when God called him? It's in, recorded for us in Jeremiah chapter 1, verses 4 through 7. The, Lord, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah saying, Before I formed you in the womb, Jeremiah, I knew you. And before you were born, I sanctified you. Before you were born. Hmm, that's interesting. The abortion laws today say that they can, they can exterminate a life even after pregnancy. Can you imagine the hypocrisy and the, uh, the danger that those people making those decisions, they are going to face God and He is going, if they don't repent, they are going to face the deepest, darkest spot of hell that anyone has ever seen. I can tell you that right now. Because what does God say? Before you were formed in the womb, I knew you. So even before conception, God had a plan for this man's life. And what about the countless millions of babies that have been aborted in our country? What about it? God knew them before they were even formed in the womb, regardless of how they came about, regardless if it was an act of incest, regardless if it was an act of rape, regardless of what it was, an accident. Right? Nothing is an accident to God. And that life has value and God says to him he says before you were born I sanctified you before you were born I set you apart before you were born I ordained you a prophet to the nations and then, and then notice what Jeremiah said oh Lord God behold I can't even speak I'm just a kid I'm just a youth Lord but the Lord said to me do not say I'm a youth for you shall go and do all for you shall go to all to whom I send you, and whatever I command you, you shall speak. And I love that. Again, God's commandments are what? God's enablements. We see the same thing in Moses. We saw it in chapter 3 and chapter 4 when God was going to send him back to deliver his people out of Egypt. And finally, what does it say in Exodus 4.13? Uh, Moses' final uh, excuse was, Oh, Lord, please. Send by the hand of whoever else you may send. In other words, Lord, just send somebody else. I'm not up for this. I'm fine here in the backside of the desert chasing around these smelly sheep. I'm fine with that. Send somebody else. But God loves to use the base things of the world. He loves to use the things. What did he do with David and Goliath? 
You know, David was this young, ruddy teenager. And all these men of war are out there in the Valley of Elah. And here comes this giant mass of uh, genetic material coming at him named Goliath. And what does David say? This, and he starts to defy God, this Goliath. And David says, who is this uncircumcised Philistine? I'm going to take his head off in the name of God. And I love the, 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 the zeal of David. And can you imagine? See, that's the kind of stuff that God loves, especially when he's an enemy of God and he's, he, he, he is, he's destined for um, destruction. And he was. And David, uh, I'm convinced that David could have taken that rock and slung it like this and the rock could have went behind him and God would have made the rock go all the way around the globe and come up on the other side and hit Goliath in the back of the head. That there was nothing that David could do as he was throwing that, getting ready to throw that rock. God was, it was like a heat-seeking rock that was just going to make itself lodge right in the center of Goliath's forehead. He would fall, fall hard, and then David would take his sword out and cut his head off. Oh, to be a man. <laughs> Isn't that great? All the guys are going, yes, and all the women are going, ooh, that's so disgusting. But God is, he is, he loves to use those who nobody cares about. He loves to use the base things. So, verse 16, so what, are the, what is the Lord's response now to Gideon after he's giving these excuses? I'm just little, I'm nothing, Lord, I'm... All this God says to him, Surely I will be with you, and you shall defeat the Midianites as one man. And then he said to him, I, If now I have found favor in your sight, Gideon tells the Lord, then show me a sign that it is you who talk with me. Do not depart from me here, I pray, until I come to you and bring out my offering and set it before you. And he said, I will wait until you come back. And so it probably took some time for Gideon to, to get a, a kid of the goats or, 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 or whatever and, and to bring it before the Lord. And the Lord was just waiting there patiently. You know, this was a step of faith for him because remember, food was scarce. Their fields were being ravished by the Midianites and the Amalekites. And here he is. Uh, he's going to prepare this food for this angel. And one thing you have to remember is that a true angel uh, from God will not accept worship. A true angel of God who's been sent by God will not receive worship unless he is God in the flesh, unless he is the angel of the Lord. And so Daniel, you remember, and even John the Apostle, they encountered you know, Gabriel and, uh, and Michael. And whenever they saw them, they fell flat on their face and they began to worship them in a sense because of their, their, their glory. And, and they would reach down and say, don't worship me, worship God. And that was the angel's response uh, to these men of God who were overwhelmed by even the presence of an angel. And you remember that there was one angel who wanted worship and coveted worship and we know that it was Lucifer. You recall in Matthew chapter 4, the devil tempting Jesus, says, All these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. That's what Satan said to, to Jesus. <laughs> and Jesus, I loved it, says, Away with you, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. So a true angel of God will not receive worship unless it truly is God Almighty in a pre-incarnate form. And that's exactly what Gideon did. So verse 19, Gideon went in, he prepared the young goat with unleavened bread and an ephah of flour and the meat he put in a basket and he put the broth in a pot. And he brought them out to him under the terebinth tree and presented them. 
And the angel of God said to him, Take the meat and the unleavened bread and lay them on this rock and pour out the broth. And he did so. And then the angel of the Lord put out the end of his staff that was in his hand, and he touched the meat and the unleavened bread, and fire rose out of the rock, consumed the meat and the unleavened bread, and the angel of the Lord departed out of his sight. Now, there are so many things that come to my mind when I see this. You know, I think of the prophets of Baal and how, you know, they poured water on this thing, on this altar, you know, seven times. And then finally, when Elijah calls upon the Lord, he he consumes the sacrifice, the altar, the water, everything. He licks it up, the Bible says. I love that. And then they see this. And notice that he is the one who received it, this angel. He received that worship. He waited for him to come and he worshiped the Lord right there. And see, this is what real worship is. And you notice that the, um, that the angel of the Lord, God Almighty, he, it wasn't that he was hungry. It wasn't that he needed the meat. He didn't need the meat. Gideon and his family and those around him, they needed that goat more than, more than God did. God didn't need the meat of the, of the goat. But notice that God received it because that's what real worship is, isn't it? Real worship, remember, is sacrifice. It's sacrifice. Worship begins when we take what is a valuable, what is of value to us or valuable to us, and we give it to God as an offering to Him because He is truly worthy. What Basically what we're doing is we're ascribing worth to the Lord moreover than the thing that we possess or the thing that we have. And you remember, there there's so many wonderful instances of this in the Bible. Remember Mary of Bethany who had this jar of spikenard, which was worth a, a couple years' wage at least, or at least a year's wage. That's the costly, how costly this spikenard was, and yet she would anoint Jesus' feet. So real worship costs us something. Otherwise, it is not worship. And that's really challenging, and that's why... Sometimes when we gather together and we worship, uh, you know, singing to the Lord, uh, it's a challenge, isn't it? Because sometimes we, especially when we come into the building after a long day's work, and maybe you've, your boss had been writing you all day, and you're just feeling spent. You're, you're mentally, you're fried. Physically, you're fried. And you're just sitting there in the chair, and you're just like a pile of mush. And that's okay, because the Lord wants to minister to you regardless of where you're at. And you're just thinking to yourself, Lord, I just want to shut my eyes here until the worship is done, and then I'm going to snooze through most of the service, right? And, but the thing is, is to really challenge yourself and say, you know what, God, regardless of how I'm feeling right now, you deserve my worship. You deserve my worship because right now I do not feel like doing it, but I do it because you are worthy. Even though it's a song I've heard maybe a thousand times, Lord, I don't even need to look at the screen. I already know the words. I know them in Hebrew and Greek and Latin too. I know the words. (laughs) And yet you do it. You do it anyway. Even though your heart is not in it. Even though, and the devil is right there saying, you know, you're the biggest hypocrite. You're the biggest hypocrite. You come from from work and you come and you sit here and now you're going to be holy, right? And now you're going to share, now you're going to sing to the Lord. And you're going to worship Him. And the devil's right there going, you have nothing in your heart. There's nothing going on in your heart. Why even bother? Why don't you just leave? Why don't you just leave? Besides, you're, 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 you're making everybody else here, you're contaminating everybody else with your bad attitude. Right? And that's what the devil says. And God says, don't you move. You stay right there and you just open your mouth. You just open your mouth and the world can think you're going through the motions, but I'm just getting started with you. 
because when he sees a heart, even though it can mutter out only a few words because they're so tired or beat or spent or spiritually discouraged, you find yourself getting encouraged as you worship him. Because it's not about me. It's not about, it's not about us. It's about Jesus Christ, right? And so when we do that, boy, that the love lords that. He loves that, especially when it's, it is, it's a sacrifice of praise. Remember what happened to David. It's recorded for us in 2 Samuel chapter 24, beginning in verse 18. Remember that David, in his old age, right before he would go home to be with the Lord, he made a really big error. He made a big mistake. It was a sin. He wanted to, he asked Joab to go and number the people of Israel. And remember, as a result of that, God gave him three things that would happen as a consequence. And he let David choose which of these three things that God would do as a consequence for his sin. And, and David says, you know what? Uh, I would rather not fall into the hand of man, but I'll just fall into the hand of God. Lord, whatever it is that you want to do. And the Lord did the quick thing and just causing a plague to come across for like three days. And he wiped out a lot of people. And then he was over Jerusalem, remember, and the angel um, uh, came over Jerusalem. And notice what it says here, uh, that the angel stopped and uh, says, and, and Gad came, a prophet came that day to David and said to him, Go up and erect an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Aruna, the Jebusite. And so David, according to the word of the Lord, he went up as the Lord commanded. Now Aruna looked and he saw the king, he saw King David and his servants coming toward him. So he's probably thinking to himself, I hope this is good. And he saw the king and his servants coming toward him. So Aruna went out and he bowed before the king with his face to the ground. Then Aruna said, Why has my lord the king come to his servant? And David says, To buy the threshing floor from you to build an altar to the Lord that the plague may be withdrawn from the people. David knew that there had to be a sacrifice for the sin of him. His own sin and for the sin of uh, mainly for his sin, for what he did. He knew that there had to be a substitute. God didn't request David to die, but David knew the only way we're going to get this thing to stop is to make an offering to the Lord for our sin, for my sin specifically, right? So Aruna said to David, verse 22, Let my Lord the king take and offer up whatever seems good to him. Look, here are the oxen for the burnt sacrifice. And look, the threshing instruments and the yokes of the oxen for wood. All these, O king, Aruna, has given them to you. And Aruna said to the king, May the Lord your God accept you. Notice what I love David said. This is so huge, folks. This is so huge. The king said to Aruna, No, but I will surely buy it from you for a price. And in fact, in First Chronicles, you might want to write these, this verse down, this reference, because it, it gives a little more information on this passage. It's in First Chronicles chapter 21, verses 1 through 30. Notice what David said to him. He says, no, I will surely buy it from you for the full price, he tells him. For the full price, nor will I offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God, which that with with that which costs me nothing. So David brought the threshing; he bought the threshing floor and the oxen for fifty shekels of silver. And David built there an altar to the Lord and burnt and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. And so the Lord heeded the prayers for the land, and the plague was withdrawn from Israel. David knew that. Uh, because, you know, Aruna, his heart was so wonderful. He's just like, you know what, David, I'll give you this whole plot of land here on top of Mount Moriah. In fact, it was that very spot that David's son Solomon would build the temple. It was that very spot that Abraham offered up Isaac hundreds, you know, or I'm sorry, thousands of years prior. 
That's where, that's where Abraham offered up his son. That's where the temple would ultimately be built on that spot. On that spot. And notice the angel, after uh, God had, uh, the angel of the Lord received it, the, the angel um, disappeared out of his sight. You, we don't have time, but you can look at Judges 13 and you can see uh, Samson's father, Manoah, and his wife. They had a similar encounter with the angel of the Lord. And the angel of the Lord, actually, while they were building an altar or, or building a, a, an, and having an, uh, an offering there on the fire, that the angel actually went up in the smoke of the flame off the altar that they were offering. An amazing thing. It says, so now let's go to verse 22. Now Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord, and so Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. And then the Lord said to him, verse 23, Peace be with you, and do not fear. You shall not die. Now that would be very encouraging information uh, because uh, Gideon was going to be going up, the Midianite and the Amalekites, and they were, seven, they were like 135,000 at least, and he was going up before them. Um, he didn't know it yet, but he thought he had like, uh, I think, 44,000, uh, uh, something like, or, or 22,000, something like that. And God would have to winnow, and we're going to uh, winnow that army down to just 300 men, and we're going to see that in the next chapter. Not tonight, but the following week, we will see that. But the Lord says, peace be with you, do not fear. Now God doesn't mince words, does he? He says, do not fear, because he knows that the person he's speaking to is fearful. He did the same thing with Joshua. You can look at the very first chapter of Joshua in the first, uh, um, the first uh, 11 verses. In fact, God said to Joshua in chapter 1, verse 9, he says, haven't I commanded you, Joshua? I'm going to bring you into the land. Haven't I told you that I was going to do this? And, he said, and God says to him, be strong and of a good courage. Notice, do not be afraid. Do not be, nor be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Isn't that what he just told Gideon? See, God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He, he's unlike anyone. He knows. He's the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He's seen it. He's seen yours and my life as if it's already uh, had come to pass. He's seen everything in between. And I love that about the Lord. Doesn't that encourage your heart to know that God has that knowledge? And to me, it's so wonderful to know that you're being held. You know, John chapter 10 says there's nothing in heaven above or in earth beneath that can pluck us out of God's hand. We're secure in Him. So notice what happens. Verse 24, So Gideon, therefore, he built an altar there to the Lord, and he called it the Lord is peace. And that literally means uh, Jehovah Shalom. That's what it means. The Lord is peace. To this day, it is still an Oprah of the Abiezrites. Now, it's not there today. I'm sure there's remnants of it somewhere, and maybe somebody knows where that is. I certainly don't. But then, it says this, verse 25, It came to pass that same night that the Lord said to him, said to Gideon, Take your father's young bull, the second bull of seven years, and tear down the altar of Baal that your father has, and cut down the wooden image that was beside it, and build an altar to the Lord. Notice, he first had to tear down the, this idolatrous altar. And then, verse 26, Now build an altar to Jehovah your God on top of this rock in the proper arrangement. And take the second bull and offer a burnt sacrifice with the wood of the image which you cut down. What is this wooden image? 
<laughs> this, we'll, we'll actually get to that in a few minutes. But notice this false religious system had to come down before a right relationship with God could be established with a new, a new sacrifice, a new way of serving God. It's been said, before God gives his servants great victories in public, he sometimes prepares them by giving them smaller victories at home. And before God would lead Gideon out against this huge Midianite and Amalekite army, God would do something really unique with Gideon at home. He would, he would have to face his own father who had erected this altar to Baal. He would have to face all the men in the city who were incensed about what had happened here and what Gideon was about to do. So what does it say? Verse 27, So Gideon took men from among his servants and did as the Lord had said to him. But because he feared his father's household and the men of the city too much to do it by day, he did it by night. So, you know, you may think to yourself, well, if he didn't do it by day, then God's not going to accept it. You know, but the fact is, is that he did it. He did it at night, certainly. Was it uh, the time that God wanted him to do it? Don't know. It didn't say. <laughs> but uh, Gideon did it by night. And so, verse 28, Then the men of the city, they arose early in the morning, and there was the altar of Baal torn down, and the wooden image that was beside it, and it was cut down, and the second bull was being offered on the altar which he had built. One thing you have to remember is that these altars that they would build to Baal, they'd be very elaborate. It would be a beautiful thing to behold. And, um, and they would also have this wooden pillar uh, next to it, and it would be an a, a, a idol that they would worship uh, the goddess Asherah, who was uh, um, who was a, a Canaanite goddess, and, and and they were supposed to to burn that thing and to tear it down completely. And so, verse twenty nine, they said to one another, "Who has done this thing?" So they see the altar broken down, they see the wooden image torn down. They said to one another, "Who has done this thing?" And when they had inquired and asked, they said, "Gideon, the son of Joash, has done this thing." And notice verse 30, the men of the city said to Joash, Bring out your son that he may die. Bring out your son that he may die because he has torn down the altar of Baal and because he's cut down the wooden image that was beside it. Can you just hear it in their voices? Can you believe it? They've torn down this altar and this wooden image. And, and, and again, this is the temperature spiritually where Israel was. They were completely cold. And, and why was it that they were worshiping? Why, did, why was it Gideon's father, who was the, the, the man who would build this altar? He should have known better. And now the men are saying, we need to kill him. But yet the Bible tells us in Deuteronomy chapter 13 that it should have been the other way around. Those men should have been put to death for what they were doing instead of the other way around. Those men wanted to kill Gideon, but in actuality, those men should have been killed for what they were doing. We don't have time to go there, but look at Deuteronomy chapter 13. You know, and it talks about if you know of anybody who is involved in idolatrous worship, you bring him before the, the, the leadership, and, and this man must be killed. This man must be killed if he's worshiping a false god. You've you got to blow him in. You can't let him get away with it. But notice in verse 31, But Joash his father said to all who stood against him, Would you plead for Baal? Would you save this god, this Baal? Would you save him? Let the one who would plead for him be put to death by morning. If he is a god, let him plead for himself because his altar has been torn down. I almost wonder if Joash, Gideon's father now, is seeing the faith of his son, knowing in his heart, maybe all along, that this whole thing 
what he was doing was wrong, but he never, he never took, uh, he never went to the next step and said, you know what, I know what I'm doing is wrong, but you know what, all these guys around me, they want to do this, and so, you know, he, he just caved in. Maybe that was the case with Joash, we don't really know, but when his son finally stood up uh, with the faith that God had given him and that zeal, and he finally did it, now he's st standing up with his son. He says, you better not touch my son. In fact, um, let, let Baal plead for himself. So therefore, on that day, verse 32, he called him Jerubbabel. So he called Gideon now Jerubbabel, which means let, let Baal plead. <laughs> and so, verse 33, Then all the Midianites and the Amalekites, the people of the east, so now they gathered together and they crossed over, and this is the Jordan River, so they were on the east side. Now they're crossing over the Jordan, and now they're encamping right there in the valley of Jezreel, which is that valley, the, the Jordan Valley. But notice verse 34, But the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon, and then he blew the trumpet, and the Abiezrites gathered behind him. Gathered behind him. And uh, let's see. But the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon, and then he blew the trumpet, and the Abiezrites gathered behind him. And he sent messengers throughout all Manasseh, who also gathered behind him. And he also sent messengers to Asher, to Zebulun, and Naphtali, and they came up to meet him. So these are neighbors. Uh, if, if you were to look at a map of Israel during this time and, and where the tribes were located, Certainly Manasseh, and just above that you'd have Zebulun and Naphtali and so and Asher. And so he's calling for all these guys who are close by, all these tribes. He says, come, come with me against the Midianites and the Amalekites. And so, and they came up to meet him. And here is an interesting thing. <laughs> There's been a lot said about this passage that we're going to look at here in just the last few verses here. It says, So Gideon said to the Lord, If you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, Look, I shall put a fleece of wool on the threshing floor, and if there is dew on the fleece only, and it is dry on the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. And it was so. When he arose early in the next morning that he squeezed the fleece, he grabbed it, this, this, this uh, piece of lamb's wool, and he squeezes it, and he's able to wring out a bowl of water, and Gideon said, Do not be angry with me, but let me just speak once more. Let me test, I pray, just one more time with the fleece. Let it now be dry only on the fleece, but on the ground all around let there be dew. Now this would be a harder thing, but nothing's too hard for the Lord, right? So he asks something even more hard, and God's going, Oh, please, I can do it. What do you want, Gideon? Do you want me to call? Um, do you want me to have... Uh, uh, two Bill Gray's cheeseburgers and fries appear before you with that vanilla shake. I could do that. You know, I haven't even, Bill Gray hasn't even come on the scene yet for a couple thousand years in the future yet, and they're in, in, in New York. But if, if that's what you want, I could do it. <laughs> you know, so, he's, so he, he asked God to do that, and so God does it. He does it. And I love the fact that God is 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 compassionate this is one of the themes in the whole thing i think is just the compassion and the grace of god when a uh, a child of god's faith is imperfect it's it's maybe not strong maybe he's wrestling with his understanding of who god is and how god deals with people you know and 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 i love what it says in isaiah chapter 42 it says uh verse 3 isaiah 42 verse 3 it says a bruised reed 
God will not break, and smoking flax he will not quench. He will bring forth justice for truth. And, and that's really what Gideon was. He was a bruised reed. And was God going to break him and, and cause him to his faith to be um, hurt or somehow? Uh, God do, doesn't do that. He, he's always encouraging. And I love how he met Gideon right where he's at. You know, you and I would be tempted to say, you know what, Gideon, I've already spoken to you at least twice now. I've sent the prophet. The angel of the Lord has spoken to you. You know, I've done all these things. What's the problem? You know, you and I will get frustrated, and we get frustrated with each other doing, you know, during things like this with ourselves and our family and stuff like that. But notice God is not, he's not upbraiding him. He's not yelling at him. He's not upset with Gideon. He just says, okay, I'll do it. Because he knew in the end that it was going to be just the thing that Gideon needed. And you know, that's what's so important. God knows what you need. And so if we ask out of a real genuine desire, God's not going to turn you away. If you test God, you might have a different result. You know, if you're testing God and presuming upon God and, um, and testing God in a wrong way, you better be careful because you may get in some trouble. But if your heart is real genuine and you really have a heart for Him and He sees that smoking flax, He's not just going to quench it. He's going to fan it to make it a bigger flame. When He sees that bruised reed, He's going to lift it up and apply balm to it and, and heal it and maybe wrap it up. He's not going to let the thing die. So different from the way the world is, but yet that's not the way God is. So, so verse 40, And God did so that night, and it was dry on the fleece only, but there was dew on all of the ground. And that was the harder miracle for God to do, although nothing's too hard for Him. I mean, can you imagine if God says, um, Gideon, I could speak. I spoke the very ground, the very world. Look around you. Can you see the mountains over there? There was a time when none of that existed. And I just said, let there be. And there was. Let there be light. Let there be uh, fish swimming in the ocean and an abundance of animals. Let there be uh, green beans and let there be uh, broccoli and all these other things. And God spoke and it was so. He spoke it all. And then lastly, He spoke of us. But this phrase... We see this in Christian circles. We hear of this phrase, throwing out a fleece before the Lord. And it is not really a very spiritual thing um, to do, but rather it exposes our unbelief. Because some people will say, well, I'm just going to throw out a fleece to the Lord. I would recommend not doing that. I would recommend not doing that. If the God has spoken, then believe Him. You don't have to throw out a fleece to God. If He's spoken... He's spoken, and He's going to do it. If He says He's not going to do it or He's silent, then I wouldn't count on it. <laughs> you know, wait upon Him. But see, whenever we do stuff like that, whenever we invoke throwing out a fleece, and, and um, you know, we have to remember that, that God dis condescends to us, and He did to Gideon by allowing this to happen, but it is not the recommended way about going about things. It's better to trust in what the Lord says and act upon it. So this throwing out a fleece, what, what it can do is if we get into a habit of doing that, you know, that would be like saying, if I get a phone call by my mother sometime this week, then I'll know that God wants me to get that new Ferrari, that new, uh, that new Lamborghini Countach or whatever it is, um, that really nice Italian sports car that Jane Katsonas told me about. Um, that I'm going to go and I'm going to buy that if my mother calls me this week. But if she doesn't call me, then... All bets are off, you know. 
And, uh, and so we, 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 we somehow hold God to this crazy formula that we make up. And, 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 and rather than trusting in God, we really, what we're really doing is invoking superstition. If this happens, then I know that God has spoken. And we, we put God in, uh, in a place that he, he, that he refuses to be. Because superstition is a belief or a practice resulting from ignorance. It's from the fear of the unknown. It's trusting in magic or chance or a false conception of causation. That's what superstition is. And it's a misplaced, misplaced, excuse me, superstition is a misplaced trust in God and devotion. And it exposes our unbelief and our mistrust of God. It does. And so we ought not to do that. So before somebody says, or before you say to yourself, well, I'm just going to throw out a fleece, it's better just to pray. It's better to pray and trust in God and not follow what Gideon did here. God uh, put up with Gideon in a sense, but this is not the way we ought to go about things. God permitted this because of where Gideon was at, but we ought not to take that as a formula that, well, I'm just going to do this as well. Some churches and some uh, denominations, you know, they still do that kind of thing today, but, you know, it's better not to do that. If God said, then let it be. Pray about it. If He doesn't say anything, then just continue to pray until He provides. And if He doesn't, then it wasn't His will for your life. And it's really that simple. It's really that simple. The Bible says that without faith, it is impossible to please God. So really, Gideon wasn't really operating in, in that sense of, of just believing God. Because if he just believed what God had told him, none of this would have had to happen. But again, remember the compassion and grace of God. He is that way with Gideon. And it's there to encourage us that if it's really genuine, you know, if it was really genuine for, for him to be able to, to have that kind of uh, understanding that God was really with him. You know, he was weak enough in his faith, I believe, where God says, you know what, Gideon, I'm going to meet you halfway, more than halfway, and I'm going to do what you said because I, I want to encourage you. I have a plan for your life, and I'm going to do it through you. I told you I was going to do it, and I know you're struggling, and I know it makes no sense because, and in fact, you know, God would tell him <laughs> in the next chapter, we're going we're gonna to see him take his... 22,000 men army or whatever it was, and he's going to take it down to like 11,000 and then finally down to 300. Do you realize the odds, what the percentage is? It's like he takes his army of, of 22,000, he strips it by 45% down to 11,000, and then he does another test, and we'll look at that next week, and now those 10,000, now only 300 are left. That's 1.4% of his original army or that's all he has left, actually, is 1.4% of his original. Amazing. I love what it says in Psalms, and we'll finish here. Psalm 103, verses 13 and 14. And just as Gideon, just as God was pitying Gideon, notice what it says. Verse 13, Psalm 103, As a father pities his children... So the Lord pities those who fear Him, who really, really reverence Him. They, they, they fear Him. They love Him. They, they, they don't see Him as just a, a father figure. He, he's more than that. He's Almighty God. As a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear Him. For He knows our frame. I love this. He, know, he remembers that we are dust. God remembers. He knows what we're made of. He knows what, that we're not all that. God knows all these things. And so we can be encouraged. So I want you to be encouraged by the life of Gideon because he really is an unlikely hero. 
because he was very small in his own sight. And then he used it as an excuse, you know, um, which we would do the same as well. And then he required more signs from God to encourage him in his faith, to encourage him that he was really speaking to him. And again, be encouraged by that. Although I wouldn't recommend throwing out a fleece to the Lord, just listen to the Lord, trust Him. And when He speaks, be obedient to what He reveals to you in His Word and what He speaks to your heart. Be obedient to that first. And what, he, what you're willing to do, the small things uh, that you do for the Lord, He will then give you bigger things. But if I'm not willing to do a very small thing, you know, why would God? I mean, He can, and sometimes He does, but why would He... Put me in a in a very. Why would he have me go out against a hundred and thirty-five thousand man army if I'm not willing to tear down my father's altar at home? Hmm, that's an interesting thought, isn't it? When you think about the altars that we can all build in our homes, the things that we watch on television, the types of movies, you know, the types of entertainments that we take in. We have to be careful of those things. And so, let's pray. And next week we will look at. Uh, uh, chapter 7 and, and possibly chapter 8 as well. And this is where it gets really interesting. One of the most famous passages in the book of Judges. In fact, there's more ink, there's more verses written of Gideon's life here and his what he's doing and what the Lord is doing through him than any other of the judges. The only other one that's close is Samson. But notice that God did so much in Gideon and and he's not afraid to write down in Scripture for us the reluctance, the, the, the timidity in his faith. God is not upset about that, but he uses what you're willing to give to him. So give to the Lord. Give him, and I'm not just talking about money, okay? I'm talking about give him your life. Give him your heart. Give him everything. Give him your whole heart. And, you know, don't worry about what God might do. Because whatever he does do, it is not going to kill you. <laughs> is it going to challenge you? Yes, it's going to challenge you. Um, but he's not doing any, he doesn't do anything to harm you. He rather does things to build you up and to encourage you. And that's the way you have to understand it. And that's the way I'm, I'm growing in that myself. And so let's grow in that together. It's such a wonderful journey that we have. And so let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time together. And we thank you, Lord, that you have worked in the life of Gideon. And we thank you for the encouragement that that is to us, Lord, as we see him wavering. Lord, many of us waver. Lord, I myself, uh, I don't know how many times I waver. And Lord, my wavering is not over. I wish I could say it was. But God, there's, we're human. And Lord, unfortunately, our, we, just, we, take more, we put more attention on our flesh and the things of it rather than denying it and, and trusting you, Father. Help us to as we grow in our faith with you, as we grow in our walk with you, Lord, to be more uh, aware of what you can do in spite of our physical, spiritual limitations as people, regardless of who we are, Lord. So we give you thanks and praise in Jesus' name. Amen.